Welcome back to another episode of Nevertheless, She Persisted, your how-to guide, happy place, and support system for navigating the ups and downs of life. Please share today's episode with your friends and family members and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And as always, I'm not a licensed therapist, just a teenage girl hoping to help. Enjoy! I'm here with Emily LeBaron from Salt Lake City, Utah, and she is the owner of the Therapy for Everyone brand, which you can find on Instagram. She's currently attending the University of Utah and studying social work. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I love the work that you're doing and the message you're spreading with Therapy for Everyone. Would you tell me and listeners a little bit more about your vision, what inspired you to start your shop and all of that? Sure. So I have always been a mental health advocate. I've dealt with mental health myself since I was a teenager, and I've always liked mental health merchandise. Mm -hmm. When I was in college, well, I'm still in college, when I was at a different college, (laughs) I was constantly talking to my roommates about therapy and mental health Mm -hmm. and medication, and it wasn't so much as like an advocate role, I just, I wanted to help them, and I, I saw that they needed some of that information. And so we talked about it a lot, and one of my roommates ended up showing me this really cool merchandise that talked all about therapy. And I was like, I didn't know that that kind of thing existed. So I ordered some of it and I liked it, but I didn't love it. I felt like there was kind of a need in the market mm-hmm. for stuff that talked about mental health and normalized it and normalized Absolutely. therapy. And I thought the stuff that was out was really expensive. I thought it was overpriced. And I didn't personally love the designs. Mm-hmm. I felt like a lot of people had just found a font in Word document. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, don't, I don't mean to criticize anyone else mm-hmm. who is telling this because I know that they've put, you know, work and effort into it. Mm-hmm. I just, I wanted something a little bit more personal. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I can do this. Like, <laughs> I think I'm going to do. Yeah. And so I started coming up with ideas. I decided therapy for everyone was the first design I wanted to come out with. And for a while I thought it would be my only design. Mm -hmm. And I had kind of a vision. I paid an artist to bring it to life. I love that it has original artwork. That's one of my favorite things. Yeah. And then it's just kind of grown from there. And then do you do stickers? I know on your Instagram, you can see the t-shirts and stuff as well. What are all the different products that you Um, sell with the therapy for everyone and the other slogans that you have? Yeah. So originally I was just going to do shirts. That was my plan. Mm -hmm. And I made the shirts and I had someone suggest to me that I should put them on stickers. And that was something I had never considered. And so I decided to put them on stickers and I ended up seeing how much people loved the stickers, which was really unexpected to me. I'm not someone who has really purchased a lot of stickers. It's definitely a new thing. Like my siblings are obsessed with them and I'm like, where do you put them even? But it totally is. Like my water bottle had no stickers mm-hmm. or anything on it. Yeah. I, mean, I now I've put all my stickers on it, mm-hmm. but like before that my laptop didn't really have any stickers. Like I didn't really know stickers were a yeah. thing. And once I kind of saw the success of the stickers, I was like, I would love to do some more stickers. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I decided for the time being to kind of focus on stickers. So right now we've got shirts and stickers the shirt is only available in the one design the therapy for everyone Mm -hmm. and then stickers are available in five different designs which designs are like which slogans are on those ones five designs so kind of the order we went the first one we released was the therapy for everyone last Mm -hmm. summer 
And then in February, we released um, two designs. One says, you can talk to me about suicide. And I loved the idea of that one, like having a sticker that showed people you were a safe person to talk to. I love that, yeah. I think they're like... One thing with suicide is there's so much like fear of silence and mm-hmm. judgment and like if I talk to this person is that okay? And so I, I love the idea. Yeah, will of putting... it like come back to bite you in the butt later, or will this impact your relationship in a super negative right, way? Like, Absolutely. What will happen? And so I loved the idea of putting it on a sticker and then you know having it on your water bottle, having it on your laptop, having mm-hmm. it on your bag, something that says, you know, just to any stranger or even a friend you can talk to me about suicide. Yeah. Like, I'm open. You can talk to me. The next one I released in also in February was, says, you're doing a really good job. I saw that quote somewhere and I loved it because I, I feel like for the most part, everyone is doing their best. Yeah, exactly. And it's so difficult when people are comparing themselves to each other and it's like, well, yes. my best doesn't look like this person's best, so mine not must be the best, right. but it's so subjective. Like, you can't compare how where you're at mentally to where someone else is at because we've all come from different backgrounds and journeys and it's just you cannot compare them exactly and it we're you know like you said we're all starting from a different place mm-hmm. and so I can't look at someone and say well you know they're doing so much better than me how is that possible because we have come from entirely different backgrounds exactly and, you know they are doing the best with the cards they've been dealt I'm doing the best with the cards I've been dealt and it looks different on both of us mm-hmm. and that's okay and so I loved that one. Um, that one's really cool because it, so the the colors in it are meant to kind of look like the beach a little bit. Mm-hmm. I grew up near the beach. It's one of my favorite places. And so I sent a bunch of like color palettes to the artists and I was like, I want you to somehow incorporate this. Yeah. The job. I love them. It was beautiful. Um, like the pastels and they all blend together. It's It's awesome. Yeah. I thought it was super fun. And so then the next one we did is a pill bottle that has flowers in it and Mm -hmm. on the front it says mental health medication I had received some feedback from people that they wanted a sticker talking about antidepressants Mm -hmm. and so I kind of spent a while thinking about how I could do that and actually I saw um on Instagram a tattoo for a girl with type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. and it was the insulin bottle with flowers in it Aww. and I thought it was a really beautiful tattoo and then it said type 1 diabetes and I thought what if we just take that change it mm-hmm. so you know we're not copying we're just inspired by yeah. it and make it for mental health medication and I specifically wanted it to say mental health medication as opposed to antidepressants because mm-hmm. there are so many different kinds definitely, of mental health you know, I feel like antidepressants is one group, but there are also antipsychotics. There are things for anxiety mm-hmm. there, you know, it's, so it's also different. And so I didn't want anyone to feel excluded from it. So that's anyway, that's why that one looks yeah, like that. I love it. It's, it reminds me of like my own journey with trying to figure out what medications worked because I was someone who probably tried six or seven different medications and I like had bad side effects or it just wasn't working and it wasn't changing. And once I got to a point where like I was committed to doing the work and I was making changes with my schedule and my relationships and my self-talk and I was also found a really good medication like it's like I just think of flowers blooming because it was like everything was coming together and I was living the fullest version of my life so I love that it's it's beautiful imagery totally agree and I I wanted it to be beautiful I didn't want it to be looked at as like this pill bottle you have Mm -hmm. to be like ashamed of yeah 
how it is. You know, it's something beautiful that modern medicine has given us. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just think it's so incredible. So I kind of, I wanted the sticker to reflect that. And then our most recent one that we just came out with last week says, I am more than my mental illness. And it has watercolor flowers all around it. The whole thing was hand painted, hand drawn. Which other ones have been done digitally. So that mm-hmm. was kind of a cool to do it a little bit on a different medium. And I have the original hanging over here that I love. That's so I awesome. Like that and I, I kind of, I came to that conclusion because for so many years when I was a teenager, I talked about myself like I was depressed, like depression mm-hmm. was me. I completely like, agree. Yeah. Yeah, like I I have depression and anxiety. I mean, it it would be like, oh, my name is Emily and I suffer from mental illness. Yeah, no, I I was my messed up relationships. I was my like complete emotional dysregulation constantly. Like that was just me. And I was like, my parents knew me for that craziness. My friends knew me as being withdrawn. It felt like every single aspect of my life, every day I was going to all these appointments, every day I felt so sad and overwhelmed. Yes, totally agree. When I was new to making my Instagram account, truthfully, I don't really know anything about marketing on Instagram or running an Instagram account. You know, um, I've been doing this for under a year and I'm, I'm figuring it out as I go. But in the beginning, I kind of wanted to make some posts with quotes. And so I did one that said, you are more than your mental illness. And I ended up really liking that. And I was like, I'm going to put that on a sticker because I want people to know that, you know, you are more than your mental illness. Like for me, my mental illness is definitely a part of who who I am. It's a part of my story. It's, but it's not me. Like there is so much more to me than just a mental illness. And I, like for so long, I attributed like my lack of friends or my lack of like any romantic relationships kind of like, oh, well, I have mental illness. And so I, it's like depressing. Like who wants to be around? Because that's what I've always said is I'm like, depression is really depressing. Like it's so depressing. And so I was like, that must be why. And I was talking to my mom about it and she was like, depression is not you. Like it's definitely, you know, it's a part of who you are, but it is not who you are. It does not impact how people see you. It does not like you are so much more than that. So I, I love that idea of like, you know, it's something you take with you and you, you carry with you, you use it to empathize with other people. So I was officially diagnosed with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder when I was 15. I, my, so it was my sophomore year of high school and it was not a great year for me. I had, so for a little history, I grew up kind of moving around. And when I was 10, we moved to Maryland from Texas. And so I was starting fresh. It was a new school. And this wasn't my first time doing this, but it was the first time that I struggled to make friends. Like I could not seem to make friends at school to save my life. And I just could not understand it. And it was really difficult for me. So you know, we go from fifth grade to 10th grade, and I still haven't really made any close friends. And my school was very, like, I live in Utah now. I graduated from high school here in Utah. It was very different than high school was here. In Maryland, you had to be beeped into the school. Lunches were organized into three sections. So you had first lunch, second lunch, or third lunch, and you had 15 minutes to eat. You had to eat in the cafeteria. Like, they had people who blocked it, so you couldn't eat anywhere else. 
the only place you could go was the bathroom. But if you were caught going anywhere else, you could get detention or suspended. And so it was very, and that, like, that's how it was. And it was based on where you were in the building. So it was like C and D wing ate together for second lunch. And it just depended on whatever your fourth period class was. And my sophomore year, I ended up in a class with a, a bunch of freshmen. Not that that was a bad thing. It was just the, you know, the people who were in my class were ones that I had at least been with for the last five years. And it, so it was geometry was the class. And I just could not find people to eat lunch with. Like, I most of the time, I didn't have any like, I had one really super close friend, but we often didn't have the same lunch. And everyone else was kind of acquaintances. Like, we knew each other, we talked to each other. And those are people I would happily eat lunch with, but I could, none of those people were in my lunch period. So that was really hard. I mean, coming in there and, and so for a while I would like bring a book with me and I would just read. I've always been a big reader and I just always kind of thought, well, if people see me reading, then they won't feel bad for me and it won't be like a, you know, a pity thing. And so I did that for a while and then I just kind of gave up and started eating in the bathroom because I felt like people were looking at me and people were laughing at me. And I don't know how much of that is true, you know, because we definitely perceive the world a little bit differently than maybe how it's happening. I can think of three different experiences where I was laughed at for sitting by myself. And that was so painful for me because it was like, what, like, what is it about me that to make friends? Like, why don't people want to be my friend? And I've always considered myself a good friend. You know, I try to be kind to everybody. I, anyway, I couldn't figure it out. And so I started eating in the bathroom. And at first it was actually really fine because no one knew. And beyond that, we had just, I had just gotten an iPhone. And so I would like put in headphones and watch Netflix. And so it was kind of a win-win for me for a while there. Like I was like, I get to watch TV during lunch and I get to eat my lunch and no one knows. And I'm like, I'm kind of sliding under the radar, like, so it was kind of a really cool thing and then it it got less cool <laughs> and started to make me feel very sad this wasn't the first time I had eaten lunch alone in seventh grade I did the same thing but I so for a while there it was fine and then it wasn't so fine and next thing you know lunch is consuming my whole day like I am thinking about lunch when I get in the shower in the morning at 5 a.m. and I'm crying in the shower thinking I'm gonna have to go to lunch in five hours and then my whole morning is okay lunch is coming up in an hour lunch is in 30 minutes and then lunch is over and then all of a sudden I'm like okay well I've got like 24 more hours before lunch <laughs> I'll do it all over again there was never any like peace from this lunch and I mean, it just stressed me out. It got to a point where it was really difficult for me. I like finally brought it up to my mom. It wasn't something I had told her. And, you know, she tried to help me the best she could. I begged her to homeschool me. It wasn't something she could do at the time. And so it was just really hard. And it was kind of like the physical evidence of me not having friends. Like before that, all the evidence had kind of been emotional. and. I I had a really good group of friends from church, but none of us went to the same schools, which was awesome when we got together for church gatherings, but 
when I was at school, that didn't help at all. So I, I was like, I know I can make friends. Like I know I'm capable, but for whatever reason, this isn't happening for me. And it it was really like the first time I was looking at it physically, like before then it was just kind of like my emotional feelings. And I, I didn't really know how to I don't know, process those. And so all of a sudden I felt like I was looking at the physical evidence of me not having friends. And that was really difficult for me. And that kind of in a culmination with a couple other things that were going on, mostly that though, it just, it, I feel like it just really started to make me sad. <laughs> I, was, I was sad a lot. And I really felt like that was kind of the beginning. Like I started becoming a lot more withdrawn I didn't want to do the things I loved doing. I, that year I built up my own piano business where I was a teacher and I had over 30 students and I was so proud of this. I mean, this is something, you know, at 15 that I completely did for myself and, you know, I I was so proud of what I was doing and all of a sudden I didn't love it anymore. And I, I didn't like what I was doing. I loved the piano. I didn't want to practice anymore. Did you get I, to that point where like every single time you had to do something relating to the piano, you were like dreading it and it was like a yep. chore? Yeah. Yeah. Every single time. And I, my mom kept, I think she brought it up to me once where she was like, I think you might be depressed. And I was like, <laughs> absolutely not. Like, <laughs> not a chance. Not me. Not yeah. me. Uh-uh. It's not happening. Like, yeah. that's not me. Like, what? No. <laughs> yeah. And so I feel like I ignored it for a while and there I do remember one day I was sitting at the piano and I was like trying to practice Mm -hmm. and I'm just crying like nonstop. yeah yeah I mean I really a lot of it was like sleep started to consume my life Mm -hmm. all I wanted to do was sleep if I could have slept all day all night like kind of my way of like numbing out the Mm -hmm. world that was my plan yeah like I'll just sleep Forever. Forever. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So, you know, there were a lot of like little signs here and there, but one day I'm playing the piano and our piano was in the same room as like where our home computer was. Mm-hmm. And I'm playing the piano and I'm crying and my tears are like falling on the music and yeah. they're like blurring out the note. <laughs> and it was just so sad. And I, I swear I cried it ever. I mean, I felt like I was crying all the time. Yeah. Like, I cried that much in my life. Mm hmm. And my mom was finally like, okay, that's it. We're going to the doctor. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no more. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, we're going way. to the doctor. And so we just went to my pediatrician. Mm-hmm. That was kind of our, our starting place. And I loved my pediatrician. She was so kind. And she was kind of like, yeah, I think you're depressed. Like, I really think that's what's going on. And so I went to her and she immediately put me on Zoloft. Mm-hmm. Um, within I think the first appointment I was put on Zoloft Mm -hmm. and then I was she referred me to a psychiatrist who I went and saw and she definitely was a psychiatrist but she was also kind of a therapist like Mm -hmm. you know we we would go in and talk about medication and things but we would also talk about my life and kind Mm -hmm. of stressors going on and she was really great. I really loved her. I also started going to a therapist, but I, I had a hard time connecting with this therapist. Yeah. We had, I think, two sessions. I didn't want to see her again. I didn't want to go back. So I didn't. And I just kind of lived in this, like, sort of limbo where things had gotten better, like... You better. weren't at a low anymore, but they weren't good. Yes. Like, they'd kind of gotten to the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I wasn't nearly as bad as I had been. But I definitely wasn't, like, great. Yeah, yeah. 
And so I, I kind of got to that point and then, and I lived like that for over a year. Mm-hmm. And then right before my senior year of high school, we moved to Utah. And actually the the move came as a huge relief to me because I was switching schools. Yeah. And I, I was incredibly excited about it. And I ended up making a really great group of friends when I got here to Utah. That's which awesome. It was absolutely incredible. And it, you know, it made me feel a lot better about myself. Like I could make mm-hmm. friends, and, but the move was a lot more taxing on me than I thought it would be because I wanted it so badly. Yeah. Um, but- you're using opposite hands and you're stimulating both sides of your brain. And so it just breaks up that circuit of anxiety and fear. I also love blasting music and headphones. Um, not too loud. Don't damage your hearing, but just to kind of, again, break that circuit of that thought. And so I kind of I started to like dip down low again. And I also, I wasn't fantastic at taking medication. <laughs> I had a little bit of like a vendetta against taking medication. I was mm-hmm. like, well, this isn't who I am. This makes me someone else. This is yeah. my personality. I don't want it. And so I would go on and off of it. I would go through withdrawal and then I would take it again because withdrawal was so miserable. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so I, I wasn't great at taking medication. We got here, things kind of hit a low again. My mom found me a really great therapist who I still love and see four years later because mm-hmm. she was incredible. And so really connecting with her was a big milestone in kind of my mental health journey mm-hmm. because we clicked so well. And I just, with the other therapists I had had, I felt like they kind of sat there the whole time taking notes. And I, I wasn't, I didn't really feel like they were engaged. And I always wonder um, what they're writing. Like, I know. What are you... you... Well, okay. I'll tell you now that I am in school to become a therapist. Mm-hmm. They're writing down every detail of you. Oh my god! So that they don't forget for the next session, and then they yeah. can help. You. <laughs> like my therapist now, she like reads back what she writes. She knows she's writing it down correctly, and she's like, "I'm just doodling. Don't worry." Uh-huh. It's like her. I know what she's writing, but sometimes I'm like underneath your eyes, your heart rate will physiologically slow down and you will calm down because your body cannot maintain that heart rate and that level of oxygen intake without having excess carbon dioxide typically. So that is the last skill. Again, it requires more tools and more supplies. And if you're sitting at a family dinner, like that's not going to work, but it is a great one. The next question, what's one relationship you've had to reevaluate and rebuild since coming out of McLean and therapeutic boarding school, i.e. relationship with your family, friends, teachers, etc.? How did you work on rebuilding those relationships? So the biggest relationship by far that I had to rebuild was with my parents. And like I've talked about in past episodes, like I've talked about in past episodes, my relationship with my parents was a really rocky one. And As I've also talked about in past episodes, I didn't experience a trauma or a loss or anything that typically can cause depression. So I just experienced this low mood that just grew and grew and grew over time and this sadness that kind of consumed my life, but there wasn't a cause for it. And so I I blamed my parents for that suffering. And in my mind, when I thought through it, I said, hey, they raised me into the person I was. They made most of the decisions in my life up to this point. So it must be their fault that I'm so miserable because I was, again, seventh grade, eighth grade. That was the way I thought through it. And I wanted to put this blame for all this suffering somewhere. And so I put it on them. And I can now tell you this was so, so, so not the case. Mom and dad, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. So that was a relationship that I 
definitely had to do some rehabilitation on. And it became very clear to me over time that if I didn't do that, I would never graduate treatment and I would never come live at home because having that relationship with my parents was crucial to my functioning. So this relationship repair, I guess you could call it, started with actually building a foundational relationship with my parents. So I had to spend time with them. I had to talk to them. I had to let them know that I wasn't okay. We had to interact with each other and interact effectively. And shockingly enough, this was something we had not been doing. So this was a shift we had to make. And so this started, and so again, this was the foundation. And from there we worked through and processed what had gone wrong when I was at home. So anything that we were holding grudges on, we talked about in therapy. And this literally took over a year of weekly family therapy sessions. And this was not a short process, I can tell you that. But it was very, it was necessary. If we were holding on these grudges about past arguments we'd had or past interactions, we would never be able to get to a place where we could have a healthy relationship. So the last thing that we had to do was really build trust. And that meant that they knew I would be safe. They knew I would tell them when I wasn't doing okay. And they knew that I would be honest with them. And so when I came home from therapeutic boarding school, it really did take a long time to adjust and a long time for my parents to do things like go out with friends or drive with them because they were used to having this kid who didn't know how to function or cope. And so it it was a huge mindset shift for all of us. So that honesty took a long time. But big picture, rebuilding that relationship, like I just said, meant creating the foundation of connection, undoing the damage, and then building trust. And so at this point, I'm super happy with my relationship with my parents. I love them more than anything in the world. And so that is such, such progress from that point where I hated them more than anything. So yeah, big picture, that was the relationship that required the most, the most work. The last question I have for today is how did you deal with the transition from residential to regular school? What were the most difficult parts and how did you deal with them? So I left for residential treatment in Boston February of my freshman year and I moved home a week before my junior year began. So I really was gone for a long time and now for senior year next year and for this past year junior year i went to a public school so academically it was really really different freshman year i went to a private school and it was pretty different there weren't really there weren't grades you didn't have that many tests and so prior to this year junior year where i'm at public school I had never had to study for a test or really take notes or read a textbook or do a ton of homework and so that academic shift was really, really difficult to understand for a while. And when I came home, I went to a new school and I didn't know anyone there, but I was lucky that I had friends at home. So I had people to hang out with after school and on the weekends and talk to. So it wasn't like I was moving to a new town or a new city. I was coming home and just attending a different school. As far as the most difficult parts, one of it was definitely getting privileges from my parents because like I said to the last question, it took so long to build that trust. Adjusting to academics, like I mentioned, was also really different. And the final thing was accepting that my life wasn't going to be like everyone else's was right off the bat. I was coming out of a year and a half of intensive treatment. I had struggled for a really long time with depression and anxiety. And so my parents were worried about me just living at home for the first time. They weren't worried about, can I go hang out with friends after school? Can I drive with this person? Like, that's not what they were focused on. So I had to really accept that, hey, my life isn't going to look like these people and for good reason. But that was hard. That was really, really hard for me to accept and understand that it would take time for that shift to occur. But my biggest takeaway from all of that was to ask for help. And for academics, that meant asking my teachers, like, how do I study for this test? Or asking friends, hey, how do you take notes for this? What's effective? Because I just didn't have those skills. Or asking my parents, how can I get these privileges that I want? What can I do to work towards that? And so 
asking others what to do when I didn't know how to get things that I wanted wanted or that I wanted in my life. And those things, like the, all these tests and this, these privileges that felt so unfair and like that disconnected me from my peers, it felt really unmanageable. But when other people were offering that support, when I offered them help, and when I told them that I wasn't sure how to how to navigate that, that was really, really effective in helping me feel like I wasn't alone. So that was my biggest takeaway. So that's the last question I have for today, you guys. Thank you so, so, so much to everyone who sent in questions. I think I'll definitely do this again. So let me know on Instagram if you liked it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts as well if you love this episode. If you have a question for next time, all of the information on how to submit is in today's episode notes, but basically you can email me, submit anonymously, DM me, or anything else. There's so many options. So thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I will talk to you next week. Bye. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Nevertheless, She Persisted, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends and family. To stay updated on new episodes dropping and bonus content, follow Nevertheless, She Persisted on social media. Instagram at She Persisted Podcast, Twitter at Persist Podcast, Facebook at Nevertheless She Persisted Podcast with Sadie Sai, and check out my website, ShePersistedPodcast.com. And don't worry, all of these are linked in today's episode notes. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next Friday.